when I was a kid growing up, there was but one picture of Jesus. It was in the church sanctuary, and it was on the right-hand side of the altar. It was right here. When we went down into the basement fellowship hall, it was right where the serving line was. It was the same picture that if you opened a Bible and there was a picture of Jesus, that was the picture. It was the same picture of Jesus that was in my town's library, and it was this picture right here, this picture. No. This picture. Warner Solomon uh, painted this in 1941, and he titled it The Head of Christ. It's an appropriate name. Okay? As of 1990, which is some years ago, over 500 million copies of this portrait had been sold legally. <laughs> okay? And there's a lot of buying and selling and copying that's been going on legally. That's half a billion, which has put him. Believe it or not, in art, real artists, you know, oh, look down at their nose. But it means that Solomon, because of this one portrait, is considered to be one of the most famous artists of the 20th century because it was so widely distributed. Now, for the sake of people that are going to have to listen to this on the podcast, I need your help in the room today. Let's say that you're a woman, and let's say that you uh, need to deliver a note to a friend of yours who happens to work, let's say, in a stripper joint, okay? Follow me. And you need, you need someone to accompany you into this place. If you didn't know this was Jesus, you didn't know who this was, and you just saw a picture of this guy as someone who could potentially escort you and protect you, would you have faith and confidence in this man's ability to keep you safe? <laughs> okay, you'd want somebody with no sleeves, muscle, and maybe a tattoo? Right, okay. Can, can, can I be honest with you about pictures of Jesus that I've noticed? A lot of them are kind of effeminate, if I can just say that. A lot of them definitely capture the meek and mild part of Jesus that we read about in Scripture. And uh, let's, let's, let me show you several. And... My, you'll notice, and if they go to the next picture, most of the pictures of Jesus are always in this, what I call, touchdown Jesus pose. <laughs> there was actually a big statue in Ohio that was called touchdown Jesus, only it burned and they, have their, you know, they had to replace it. So here's touchdown Jesus number one. There he is, touchdown Jesus number two. Here's another third touchdown Jesus. See, his hands are always open, kind of... Ex- and these are the pictures that kind of get circulated. And if we go to the next picture, this, this last one, we'll stop here. And there he is again. Again, looking, if you didn't know who that was, if you just saw a picture of this, maybe with some contemporary clothes, your confidence in his strength might not be a 10. Okay? Just, I, just saying. Okay? Um, and so today, as best I can, I want to show Jesus in a different light than maybe you've been accustomed to because of the pictures that circulate in our culture. And Jesus' first coming, Jesus' first coming, we celebrate every Christmas and we tell the story, right? A little baby born in a manger. 
and he grew up in this obscure village in, in Galilee. He was the son of a Jewish carpenter, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus' second coming is going to be a little different. And the imagery that's in the Bible is that of a warrior king. And if I can show the next couple of pictures, it's very hard to find uh, pictures of this. Oh, by the way, there's Buddy Jesus. He's kind of popular these days. He's your friend. He's got your back, okay? But if we could go to the next couple of pictures after Buddy Jesus. Here's, I, this floors me, but this person here to the left with the sword and the arrows in the back, that's a portrayal of Jesus at his second coming. Um, and notice he's got some angels that look a little threatening with him. And if we can go to the next picture, right? Here he is on a sword, and you can't even see his face. But, you know, if, if that were coming towards you, you might step back a few paces, right? <laughs> okay? So, I, again, I want to do as good a job as I can today of painting a picture that the Bible portrays about Jesus' second coming. Um, and it's actually an essential, it really is essential to believe that Jesus is coming back. We have this thing on our website called our Statement of Faith. Some of you occasionally read it, and we say this is essential, and our Statement of Faith is pretty easy. It's just the Apostles' Creed. But woven into that is this statement. We believe in Jesus' personal return to consummate history. We believe he's coming back. We're convinced of it, and we're convinced the Bible teaches it. So what exactly does the Bible tell us about Jesus' return. And we're going to look in four passages today, and my hope is that in looking and in moving through these four passages, you'll get a clearer picture of the important stuff about Jesus' return. The first passage is Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 to 31. And the New Living Translation puts it this way, and they'll put it on the screen. And then at last... The sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. If you can go back to the first part of that verse, right? Awesome. Okay? Um, the sign banner, the sign, and then at last, the sign. So there's like a debate among scholars. Is this verse talking about a sign or a banner and Jesus? John Christostom said, yes, in fact, there'll be this giant cross that appears, you know, and it'll, that'll be the banner that says, this is Jesus, here he comes. Other scholars say, no, 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 the sign is Jesus. His coming, you know, boom, there's your sign. Oh, it's Jesus, Okay. So, and there's a bit of a debate along those lines. But notice, there will be what? There's two words. There will be deep mourning. The word in the Greek is kapto, which means this. Ah! It's a beating of the chest in anguish. Jesus' return is going to cause that among some people. Um, and then there's this imagery he will send angels, the blast of a trumpet, uh, and from the clouds of heaven. If you were a Jew of the first century and you were reading these words, you would immediately go, oh, 
This is the majestic arrival of the Messiah. I know this. This has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. This is, boom, this is it. Ding, 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 ding. You know, here it is. Clouds, trumpet, all of those things are part woven into the literature. And any Jew of the first century would have known. This is the majestic arrival of the Messiah. But notice it's all the peoples of the earth. Everyone. Everyone. Jesus' return is not going to be some secret. One of the things we can deduce from this passage and many other like it is that there's not... I, I don't know about you, but when I go through the checkout line at Walmart and Kroger, there are these magazines that are along the checkout line. Most of them focus on pictures of Kate Middleton and whether or not she's pregnant. But then off to the side, sometimes there's crazy stories like Jesus has already returned and is living in Croatia waiting for his moment. And I think... No, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Okay, so, so if you've ever heard stories along those lines, just set them aside. Everything in the Bible from cover to cover about the return of Jesus, especially the stuff that Jesus himself says and what's said in Paul in his many letters, is that when Jesus returns, everybody's going to know. I mean, it's going to be out in the open it's going to be 100% certainty. It's not going to be imaginary. It's not going to be something that's taking place in your head like at the end of the Harry Potter movie where Dumbledore appears again and it's like, no, this is in your head, but it's still real, right? You know, and no, it will be literal, visible. Every, you know, the president of the United States, oh, it's Jesus. The guy cleaning your kid's school, oh, it's Jesus. Now, allow me to give you a Max Vanderpool take on this. I happen to think that at that moment, at his return, there will be two immediate quick responses among everybody. Response number one will be, yes. Response number two will be, crap. And it will be one or the other, and it will, you won't have to think about which one it is. It will just come out of you, okay? And again, that's just my take, okay? So that's the first of these four passages. If we turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 11 we're told some more things about Jesus' return. There are some robed men after Jesus ascends into heaven. And the robed men say this, Men of Galilee, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he'll return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, Many of us grew up with very literal ways of reading the Bible. So, which direction is heaven, right? Heaven's up, hell is down, and we're kind of trained to think this way. And it might very well be the case that that's the way it is. But another way to look at it is heaven and earth are spheres of reality. And in Jesus' return, that... Those spheres collide in a big-time way because all of a sudden now everybody is going to be aware of Jesus. So from this passage, there's something very important that we see. In the same way. What do we know about Jesus in this moment? He has a body. You can see him with your eyes. Jesus' return will be the same way. He will have his resurrected body and you'll be able to see him with your own eyes, yourself. Again, nothing imaginary about it. So let's keep going along. There's another passage, and it's found in 1 Thessalonians. This is the passage we were in on Easter Sunday. 
but I want to call out something a little bit more deeper from this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. For the Lord himself will come with a commanding shout with the voice of the archangel and with what? The trumpet. Now, if again, if you're a Jew and you're reading this at 110 AD, what do you immediately think? Ding, 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 ding. This is the majestic arrival of the Messiah. Boom, boop, big deal, big deal, big deal. Okay? And that language is meant to, you know, cue people in on this fact. So there's a couple of things I want to draw out for this. Then together with them, we'll remain on earth, caught up in the meeting of the Lord in the air. There's a word used here, apentasis. And this word refers to what would happen if, uh, let's say it's the village of Pompeii before the volcano. And let's say that Caesar is going to visit Pompeii. What would happen is that the people, the town officials, the important people of Pompeii would not let Caesar just walk in on his own. They would pull together a delegation. They would go out and meet Caesar's entourage and bring him into the city with big fanfare so that everybody knew. I mean, woo, here comes Caesar, you know, so that it was lots of pomp, you know, drawing attention to the fact that Caesar had arrived. And that's the word Paul uses to describe the Lord's return here. That's one of them. So there, again, everybody's going to know. There's going to be this hoopla. There's no mistaking it. You, it's not like three days later you're going to be calling your friend going, hey, what happened? You know, I was it's noticed on CNN. No, 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 no. <laughs> you will know, okay? So uh, there's another word in the verse before this, and that word is parousia. Um, and that's traditionally the word that us eggheads like to call the second coming of Jesus because that's what it's called in the Greek, the parousia which literally means presence. Now, there are a couple of ways that that word is used. One, um, it's used that when a God would reveal his power through healing. The other way that word is used is when a king would visit a colony or a province after a prolonged absence. Huh. (laughs) Boy, definition number two really kind of seems in line with some of the other things that we're reading about, about the return of Jesus. Those two things together, parousia and apentasis, are presenting Jesus as someone very important. Very, very important. And among the early Christians, it was creedal and it was, I will die for this. And that is simply, Jesus is Lord. And when they said that, it had a bit of a twist to it. Because when Christians in the first century were saying, Jesus is Lord... They were very specifically also saying, and Caesar isn't. They would be, Nero would tie Christians to posts and set them on fire. They would be beheaded. They would be crucified. They would be rounded up. And all the while insisting, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord, and I will die for him. This is a powerful thing, isn't it? So this Jesus who's coming and who's coming back isn't just, say, Jesus meek and mild. 
stopping by for a friendly visit. There's something very important going on in the second coming that's, that's, that's big, okay? And we see that in Revelation chapter 19, the fourth and last passage we're going to look at today. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, describe Jesus in a way that the first time I read this, I was like, that's Jesus? I mean, I, I would just remember being floored that this particular description was describing the person I had heard about in church, okay? So let's walk through this. This is John's vision. And then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself, and he wore a robe dipped in blood. And his, little, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing through a rind press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. Isn't that an interesting description of Jesus? Not the one you typically encounter, say, at Christmas time, right? <laughs> or even Easter Sunday. But in Jesus' return, one of the biggest images that comes up in the New Testament is that of a returning warrior king. Um, and we Americans living in 2015, we, I think we have a hard time with the concept of king. Because if I mention royalty, you immediately think of Elizabeth II, Prince Charles, oh, posh, 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 posh with a capital P. That's an old Disney thing, by the way. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. But you, you get the idea. When you think of royalty and princes and kings, you don't think of somebody that would necessarily be scary, maybe a little weird and a bit ostentatious and having lots of pomp and fanfare, but certainly not somebody that you would be afraid of maybe kind of snicker at a little bit because we're Americans and we got rid of kingship a while back, supposedly. Um, <laughs> right? Okay. So in, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, a king had absolute authority and power. When Caesar would conquer a nation, what would happen is the Roman legions would come in and first there would be carts full of the booty that they had taken, the gold, the armor from the conquered army. Then there would be literally captives, people in chains, in shackles, being led through the streets of Rome. And if they had the king of the vanquished enemy still alive, he would be brought before Caesar and then killed in front of Caesar and the crowds that had gathered in the plaza. This was common practice among many of the ancient armies and kings. And it's where in the Old Testament we get the fear that Esther has coming into the presence of her husband, who's also the king. You don't just show up unannounced. He could actually sentence you to death for simply showing up at the wrong time. That's absolute power. The closest thing that we have to it in our culture is if you were to imagine yourself like a small-town drug dealer here in Nicholasville... And let's say that you had to deliver a package and it was worth, say, $15 million and you made an oops. And before you know it, a guy is taking you and driving you up to Detroit 
and you're meeting this person who's like five levels up, are you starting to get scared now? <laughs> I'll pay back the $15 million. <laughs> Okay? That's absolute power. Now, the cool thing about Jesus is that he's good. He's good and just. He's not a drug lord. He's not, you know, malicious along those lines. There is no evil in him. Okay? But he does have absolute power and authority. And when he returns, he will be returning as the rightful king, visible to everyone with a bodily return. In none of the passages that are found in the New Testament do we find people saying things like, hey, Jesus, I disagree. Hey, Jesus, I'm sorry, but, you know, you're just one voice among many. Hey, Jesus, you know that stuff on the Sermon on the Mount? Whoa, little wussy there. We don't find those kind of statements. And again, I think this is, again, the Max Vanderpool take. When he returns, it's either yes or crap. It's kind of one or the other. And so I ask you a question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Let's say that he shows up at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Given where you are in your life trajectory, do you see yourself voicing a yes or more of a, "Mm, oops, you know. (laughs) Where are you with him and his kingship? We Americans love to chart our own course. Uh, We love to figure things out on our own. We don't like people telling us what to do. You know, I think, I want, I need, you know, I have found. We Americans, we love that. My feelings, my happiness, that's just kind of how we roll. God bless America, right? Okay, but, and we love Jesus as Savior. We do. We think it's awesome. But we've probably not done Jesus justice, we Americans, and those of us in the church about his kingship. It's who he is. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The early followers of Jesus knew this. Paul, who wrote many letters in the New Testament, he referred to himself as an apostle, yes, but he also referred to himself as a doulos, a bondservant. Among the Jews, it had a very specific uh, understanding. It was someone who had been a slave who, at the point of being set free, decided that he loved his master enough that he would commit to be a slave to his master the rest of his life. The master would take that person to the public place, gates of the town or whatever, and and pierce his ear with an awl. Boom. Signifying this person is mine for the rest of his life. And Paul uses, and it wasn't just Paul, Timothy. I mean, many of the earliest followers of Jesus take that title Doulos. I am a doulos of Christ. And what they were basically acknowledging is, Jesus is my king. If he says go, I go. If he says stay, I stay. If he says, I want you to do this, I do it. He's my king. And so again, I simply ask, who is Jesus to you? You need to figure this out. You do. Because when he returns... There, it will be obvious to all of us who Jesus really is.